Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We have the latest on the submarine vessel that was heading to the Titanic wreckage. Bill 124 is back in the courtroom. Thousands of Canadian healthcare workers are going stateside. Are you going to do the works this summer? We celebrate National Indigenous Peoples Day and a raid on the Paris Olympic headquarters. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the search for a missing submersible near the Titanic wreckage off the coast of Newfoundland continues. And this has been, well, it's really been tough to watch. I'm nervous. I'm sick to my stomach with nerves. As it stands right now, it would be a miracle if they are recovered alive. That's one of the friends of one of the people on board, a billionaire from Britain who is among four others in this submarine vessel called the Titan that was heading to the Titanic wreckage. And the, the, the signal to it was lost. And so now everyone is trying to find this tiny submarine, basically in the Atlantic Ocean near where the Titanic wreckage is. And whether or not it's going to be found and whether or not it's going to be found in time remains a mystery. We're going to get more in this report from Global's Mike Armstrong. These were the last photos taken of the Titan Sunday before it dove. It was launched from the vessel the Polar Prince. The team on that ship lost contact less than two hours into the dive. I'm nervous. I'm sick to my stomach with nerves. Janneke Mickelson is a friend of one of the men believed to be missing, British billionaire and explorer Hamish Harding. There is hope, but there is also creeping pessimism. As it stands right now, it would be a miracle if they are recovered alive. It's just starting to dawn on me about what a tragedy this really is. Oceanographer David Gallo has worked on searches for missing planes and ships. He's with RMS Titanic, the company that owns the salvage rights to Titanic. But he's also close personal friends with another of the missing. French maritime expert Paul-Henri Narjolet is often called Mr. Titanic. He's had the most dives to Titanic, studied it the longest, and uh, one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. This is not a tourist um, operation. Now, Stockton Rush was piloting the Titan. He's the CEO of the company that runs the submarine trips, Ocean Gate Expeditions. Rush was often asked about safety. He would say, if you want to be safe, don't get out of bed. The other two men missing are from one of Pakistan's wealthiest families, Shehzada Daoud and his son Suleiman. Our crews are working around the clock. Now the search is being led by the U.S. Coast Guard out of Boston. It includes a Canadian C-130 and a Canadian P-8 aircraft with underwater sonar capability. That's one of the challenges. Searchers have to look both on the surface and below the surface. Now, the timing of when the Titan stopped communicating may be a clue to what happened. One of the dangers of the dive was getting snagged on the Titanic wreck. But an hour and 45 minutes in, the Titan wouldn't yet have been close to the wreck. It would, however, have been under incredible amounts of pressure, making an implosion a possibility. They probably weren't at the bottom yet, which probably means it wasn't being snagged and uh you know that leaves uh an issue with the pressure hull uh which would be frightening now one of the things gallo says is that submarine has a shelf life the pressurization and depressurization over and over takes a toll on it there is something called cyclic fatigue and basically any problem with the hull at that depth is a disaster mike armstrong global news st john's
You can check out uh, the latest from Mike later on tonight on Global National at 6.30 on Global Television. We, we have learned overnight that a Canadian aircraft detected underwater noises during the search for this vessel. And now Canadian military surveillance plane uh, and other search efforts have been relocated to where this, this pinging or these underwater noises were happening although nothing yet has turned up. So we'll continue to bring you the latest on uh, what is happening with this story. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a hearing underway at the Superior Court of Justice over the province's wage-limiting law, Bill 124, and billions of dollars are at stake here. And all this comes after a judge back in November ruled that this bill was unconstitutional. So now the province is saying, hey, we're, we're appealing this. Colin DeMello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief of Global News and joins us now on GMH. Colin, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning. Do we have you, Colin? I'm doing well, thanks. Oh, there you are. Sorry, you just dropped out a bit. Nice to have yes. you uh, this morning. Yeah. What is being discussed in the courtroom? Well, essentially, the Ford government is back in court trying to make the argument that Bill 124 is, in fact, constitutional. Uh, There was a lower court that struck it down, indicating that, yes, Bill 124 uh, interfered, substantially interfered in the bargaining rights of union members, as laid out in the Canadian Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, The Ford government is arguing, well, well, listen, the, the Charter guarantees the right to collective bargaining, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee the outcome. So they're saying, you know, these unions are entitled to the process, but they're not entitled to exactly what the, you know, um, set of the, the negotiated amount will be at the end of the day. That is up to the actual two parties at the table. The union is arguing, well, wait a second. If you presuppose what the outcome is going to be, if you impose, you know, the, the, uh, the destination, what's the point of the journey? Uh, and so these two sides are now arguing to a higher court to a either reinstate Bill 124 if the government has its way, or uh, you know to keep it struck down as uh, the unions uh, across Ontario want. If Bill 124 remains, you know, unconstitutional, Ontario is going to owe public sector workers to the tune of uh, I think it's like eight and a half billion dollars over the next five years. Is this potentially why the government has not spent its 22 billion dollar surplus? Well, the, the, the $22 billion is money that the government has earmarked over the next four years for a variety of things, but they haven't actually allocated it to any particular uh, program. So that $22 billion isn't real cash that they have in the bank account right now. It's future dollars that they say they're going to spend, but they haven't really told us exactly what they're going to spend it on, which is kind of an unusual accounting practice, especially for uh, governments. But what what the province is kind of looking at is this massive bill for Bill 124. It could be, according to some estimates, in the neighborhood of $8.5 billion that they had to pay all of the unions back some kind of back pay. Now, the the province initially said that this was all about saving taxpayers' dollars and ensuring that the, the public sector was sustainable for the long run. Since then, though, the Ford government started cutting the gas tax cutting the vehicle uh, registration fee, giving people money back here and there. And, and the unions have argued, well, wait a second, you know, Ontario isn't really in the kind of cash crisis that the province initially said it was. So why then did it need to, um, you know, impose these wage suppression policies on, on all of these public sector workers? I, and Rick, I think the most important kind of part of, of all of this is 
back in November, when Bill 124 was struck down, a whole host of unions, including nurses, LCBO workers, etc., they started exercising a clause in their negotiated settlements that essentially said, you can reopen your contract and renegotiate um, whatever Bill 124 you know, may have interfered with. So nurses, as an example, have started getting back pay for those past three years that Bill 124 was in effect of up to 6.75%. It's substantial. Already, the province has spent about a billion dollars paying nurses. So what happens if the province actually wins here? <laughs> Do they go back and claw back wages now from nurses who started receiving their back pay? It's, I think it seems like a bit of a no-win situation for the Ford government. Yeah, it's going to get messy. Colin DeMello is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Colin is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and we're talking about Bill 124 back in the courtroom. Now, this is a three-day hearing this week. Are we expecting a ruling this week, or will that come at a later date? No, these rulings typically come at a later date. I mean, this is a panel of three judges who are taking a look, not necessarily at the merits of the case themselves, but the arguments being made about what the lower court had ruled, right? So in effect, they're examining whether uh, a lower court judge, uh, Justice Conan, had um, you know, made any errors in his ruling, had applied the law in a wrong way, or had applied you know, certain cases um, to Bill 124's uh, initial court ruling uh, that shouldn't have been applied. So they're really taking a look at whether the the lower court made any errors in the judgment and whether that should be overturned. It's not really a relitigation of Bill 124 all over again. Although some of those arguments that the government and the unions initially made certainly do come back again. So it could be weeks, maybe a couple of months before we actually get a final ruling from from the court. Last one for you. And on a different topic, Premier Doug Ford says he's going to vote for Mark Saunders in Monday's mayoral election in Toronto. This is rare for a sitting premier to endorse a candidate, is it not? Yeah, but Doug Ford is a rare bird, (laughs) I will say. I mean, you know, you will never really see politicians from a higher level of government endorsing somebody in a lower level of government. Uh, we've, we've seen it perhaps, you know, with Kathleen Wynne um, you know, stumping for Justin Trudeau back in 2015, but it rarely works the, the other way around, certainly in a mayoral race, because the city of Toronto is really a creature of the province. And for the premier to be endorsing an individual, um, you know, certainly is different. Uh, But the premier also made a note of saying yesterday, listen, you know, that's who I'm voting for. You are free to vote for whomever you want. And he said he will work with whoever gets elected as the next mayor of Toronto. Right now, it looks like, you know, Olivia Chow is in the lead, but the premier is certainly pumping up the tires of Mark Saunders um, in an effort to try to get him um, elected because the two have a closer working relationship than Ford would have with Olivia Chow. It'll be fun to watch what happens on Monday. Colin, thank you for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new report out from secondstreet.org that shows just how many healthcare workers from Canada are leaving this country to work in the U.S. We know it's a problem. This identifies how big of a problem it is. Dominic Lusick is a communications director with Second Street and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dominic, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. All right. So how many healthcare workers are bolting for greener pastures in the U.S.? 
Mm -hmm. Well, it's important to note, Rick, that in this report, we just focused on states along the U.S.-Canada border. So, um, you know, throughout that uh, that strip there, uh, we've got 10,000 nurses and doctors who have active licenses to work in those U.S. border states and have a Canadian mailing address. Now, it's important to note that we don't know for sure if um, if all of these people are actively working in the U.S. They just have a license to practice there. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it does it does mean that they have uh, at the very least an active interest in working in the U.S. because, uh, you know, getting accredited and getting a license to work in the States is a fairly involved process and it can be quite costly as well. So uh, the, these are people who are at the very least dissatisfied with the Canadian system and are looking to move on. Is money the biggest reason why? You know, that's uh, that's what we would think intuitively, right? But um, surprisingly, in a uh, we, we managed to survey a decent number of uh, of these healthcare workers, um, specifically uh, Ontario nurses who uh, work in Michigan. And our survey results there showed that money is only the number two reason. The number one reason, actually, interestingly enough, is availability of work. Now you think, wait, there's a staff shortage. How are these people having trouble getting jobs? But the the answer is that it wasn't necessarily they were having trouble finding jobs. Is that they couldn't find the schedules that they wanted. You know, um, in uh, in the government run system, they'd be offered part time work uh, where they'd have to juggle different swing shifts. They couldn't get the hours they wanted, and so um, a lot of them they they just decided, yeah, you know what, let's uh, let's look into working in the U.S. because um, it's uh, it's it's just easier for us to to fit in and get that good work life balance. Talking about a new report that shows thousands of Healthcare workers uh, from Canada leaving this country to work in the U.S. Uh, obviously, this has a national scope, but here in Ontario, we have, uh, you know, a couple of big border cities, whether it's Niagara Falls or Buffalo. And then you mentioned, you know, Detroit, Windsor. When it comes to Ontario, are we seeing higher, uh, higher percentage leaving? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the um, it's certainly the the highest number out of uh, any province. You've got uh, just over six thousand nurses and six hundred and forty six doctors um, in uh, in New York. It's about twenty seven hundred nurses and about two hundred and fifty doctors. Now, uh, I'm not sure if uh, if there's anyone in uh, in London who'd be making that commute to New York. You know, it's a it's a bit of a haul, but certainly, um, you know, Niagara Falls potentially. Hamilton and then Windsor, Detroit would be the areas where you'd see um, you'd see people who actively live in Canada, cross the border every day and uh, and come back for work. Last one for you. We've got about 45 seconds. Can we get them back? Do these workers want to stay in Canada? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, it's you won't be able to convince every single every single worker, but uh, what you can do is take into consideration that feedback of improving scheduling and the working conditions, and also encouraging the uh, the, the the growing private sector to continue to play a role. You know, we've seen uh, the Ontario government partnering with private clinics, uh, uh, privately run, publicly funded clinics to uh, cut back the surgical backlog, and that's a good thing for staff as well because it gives them uh, it gives them more options uh, for workplaces that they might prefer uh, while staying in the country. Dominic, great chat. Thanks for chiming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. 
Just in time for summer. I mean, the timing could not be better. Wild Waterworks is set to open this Saturday at Confederation Park, and it comes with some new tweaks at the popular Hamilton Water Park. Here to talk about it is Gord Costi. He's the Director of Conservation Services with the Hamilton Conservation Authority here on Good Morning Hamilton. Gord, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick, and good morning to all our uh, uh, listeners here this morning because it is a great uh, kickoff to summer. Wild Waterworks is opening. It feels like summer is about to start. Yeah, and and finally, and it, and it officially begins at 10.57 this morning, so the timing for the opening is absolutely superb. What has been going on to get ready for Saturday's opening? Wow, it's a lot of uh, background work. I could tell you uh, the staff have been knocking it out there. There's a lot of uh, summer staff hiring, as you would know, uh, almost 150 staff to hire there. Um, there's a lot of approvals, a lot of uh, safety inspections, and there's a lot of cleanup when you have a facility that sits outside through the entire winter period, getting it washed down, getting it clean, getting all the facilities open. So uh, the staff, I got to give it to them because they have been really working hard. We've got all of our approvals in place. And Saturday, June 24th, just in time, we're ready to open right with summer. Anyone who has a pool will uh, clearly realize how tough of a job it is to keep uh, open water under the sun clean all the time. So kudos to you and the staff for getting it done. Yeah, and it's uh, it would probably be about a hundred and fifty times what a public or what a private pool would be in your backyard. Yeah. So this thing is big. It's one of the biggest outdoor wave pools, uh, um, definitely in the province and likely in the country so uh, we've been really proud to have this thing and uh, really uh, happy to see it open once again because even post pandemic there's still challenges out there and one of the challenges we still face is staff shortages and lifeguard still tops the list and uh, that one's tough on us because without lifeguards we can't open it's as simple as that and we're we're happy to say we're we've got uh, a good core of lifeguards but it's only allowing us a five-day-a-week window to open this summer, same as last. So the pandemic linger still plays out on us when it comes to staffing. So the park's going to be open, I understand, from Wednesdays to Sundays, all because primarily of a shortage of lifeguards. How many more would you need to make this a seven-day-a-week operation? Well, we're still accepting applications. So if anyone's listening, we'd love to take their application um, for a qualified lifeguard. But if we could get about 10 to 12 more lifeguards on staff, it's really that close. We would be able to re-address uh, the opening schedules. But uh, right now, our confidence is at least five days a week. And we want to include uh, the holidays. There's the Canada Day holiday we'll observe on uh, July 3rd. We've got Civic Holiday, August 7th, and Labor Day, September 4th. So we we have enough staff to add those dates in. And if we can only get some more lifeguards uh, um, putting in applications here, we'd open it right up. So um, thanks to the pandemic, uh, there is that lingering staff shortage. We still feel it in some of the other sectors out there. Wild-waterworks.com is the website to get all the information about what is happening at the Hamilton Water Park at Confederation Park this year. And you can also get uh, your passes, your tickets, and all sorts of information on the website. Gord Costi is our guest. He's the Director of Conservation Services with the Hamilton Conservation Authority as Wild Waterworks gets set to open this coming Saturday.
Um, what's new at the water park this year? Well, you know, we're not a lot of uh, new attractions, but what we did, we took the opportunity while we had uh, some of that off season, we've given the place a complete makeover. Um, and sometimes those are good too, make you feel good and make people see some of the refreshing. We've repainted the full concourse. We've uh, uh, cleaned up the uh, entranceway to make it faster and easier for people to move in because we know people don't want to wait out and in line um, in the hot sun but they want to get in there get into the wave pool the the easy river it's been painted white so uh, we've cleaned up the place as best we can to just refresh it and be ready for 2023 and busting out of this pandemic this is just our second year since we were faced those uh, shutdown years just seems like yesterday uh, any indication on how ticket sales are going or season pass sales are going well, we've definitely had a lot of interest shown through social media and through uh, calls coming into the park. So uh, we're starting to sense uh, um, people coming back. Last year when we reopened for those five days a week, same as this year, we had a great response. Uh, people did gravitate to those days of the to those days of the week when we're open and it gave staff the opportunity to have days off because we were limited in staff and to uh, really get things ready for the next sequence of uh, five days of opening. So if it's anything like last year, we're in really, really good shape. Last one for you, got about 30 seconds. I know there's been a lot of hoopla about the weight scales at Wild Waterworks. Are those back? Or are they different? Or are they the same? Well, there was uh, quite a bit of hoopla there. And it's strange because we've always uh, had to by requirements through the manufacturer and TSSA to monitor their people's weight and their height. So this year we did modernize it. We have two safety stations in front of both of the slide attractions where people just simply walk across a uh, commercial slide. It's all private. The staff can then read and monitor uh, weight restrictions and height restrictions because safe for you is safe for me and safe for everyone, and safety, of course, is priority one here at Wild Waterworks. Well said. More details online at wild-waterworks.com. Gord, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day, and uh, there's actually an event scheduled for tonight at the Westdale. Uh, that will uh, help celebrate the community. Here to talk about it is say, Shane Pennells, an Indigenous filmmaker and writer, and is going to be hosting this event tonight at the West Dell that we'll get into in a matter of seconds. Shane, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. What, what, what would you say is the focus of Indigenous Peoples Day? What should we be looking at and, and listening for? Well, a lot of it is just not only coming out and, and celebrating all things Indigenous, but also just coming out and, and getting to know the Indigenous community, getting to know uh, those of us here in Hamilton. Hamilton is one of the largest urban Indigenous populations in Canada. And and so there are a lot of events around the city and just come on out, uh, kind of see how, how we celebrate the summer solstice. Just come on out and get a sense of, of who we are. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, how do you celebrate? Oh, name something. We are <laughs> going to have barbecues. There's going to be celebrations of the solstice itself. Now, personally, I'm kind of excited about the event at the West Sale tonight, not just because I'm hosting it, but because I think it's going to be a great night. 
It sounds like it. I've been looking at the details online at uh, thewestdale.ca. So you're hosting. uh, Lacey Hill is there, a couple of other guests. Tell us about what's going to go on. So tonight, you're right, we have Lacey Hill. She is an amazing singer-songwriter. We also have Gail and Cher Obadiah. They are fantastic artists, multiple visionary artists in their own right. So there's going to be poetry, there's going to be songs, there's going to be uh, a short film that I made being shown. I tried to talk Westdale out of it, but they were insistent. And and we're just going to come out, and, it, and it's not just about being a celebration, it's about being a conversation. So we're also going to be talking about what does it mean to be an Indigenous artist, not only just as as someone who, who practices different artistic disciplines, but also what does it mean in, in terms of the wider uh, community perception? Because often I'll get introduced as, let's say, Indigenous filmmaker or Indigenous artist, mm-hmm. Shane Pennells, right? So which word defines the other? Because if you say you're an Indigenous filmmaker, there's a, there's a certain perception, there's certain expectations that go with putting those two words together. And tonight we're going to talk about that and the cultural impact it can have. Yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, that's how I introduced you on the show, Indigenous Filmmaker. And, you know, I should probably just be saying filmmaker and writer. Well, you know, that that's the thing. Like, it, it's it's an honorific. It says, hey, we want to uh, we want to celebrate your, your heritage, what we do. But again, there are those expectations that come with it. There are those expectations that, let's say, I'm, I'm going to be doing Indigenous art or my artwork will be having Indigenous themes. Mm-hmm. Now, for some some people, that's absolutely right. For others, maybe not all the time. Yeah, it would be no different than if you, if I, if you were uh, hosting a show and you had me. Let's say I'm at the Westdale tonight and you're introducing me. You wouldn't introduce me as Canadian radio show host. I would just be a radio show host, right? Would you go for a pasty white guy? <laughs> Yeah, that'll work, actually. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the Westdale had to convince you to to put your film on. Why, why is that? Well, the the short film is called Huey. It's about a uh, a drone that comes to life and kind of wreaks havoc in its in its owner's life. And and there's not really any indigenous themes. We made it during the pandemic. We did it just to to get together and make something that would bring a smile to the people watching it, right? And 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 it was more just like a celebration of being able to be back in the theater after the pandemic. But again, as soon as you say it's made by an indigenous filmmaker, there are expectations. And and it's one of those things where it's like, well, do we show something that's that's by the host because the host is there? Or do we show something that maybe has a, a deeper indigenous feel? Like it again, it's one of those conversations we're gonna be having tonight and I really hope the community comes out and joins us in that conversation because it's going to be it's going to be a great one. It's going to be fascinating. It's at the, the Westdale tonight. It begins at 7 o'clock. You can get more information online at thewestdale.ca. And people, when they go on the website, they'll find out that admission is free. Is this true? Absolutely. One of the nice things is that uh, Westdale has said, hey, come on in. We're not going to charge you. We just want you to come in, have a good time. Just Come in and have a community celebration. It's going to be a blast. That is awesome. Great way to kick off the summer solstice, that is for sure. Shane, thanks for the time today. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about the Olympics. And this is a very, well, disturbing story, although some of you are probably thinking not too surprising. 
French police searching the headquarters of the organizers of the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. And apparently the raids are part of two preliminary corruption investigations. Word is that police are looking into allegations of favoritism and uh, misuse of public money when it comes to construction contracts associated with the Games. And that members of the organizing committee are cooperating with this investigation. So let's let's dip our toes into this conversation with Mac, uh, Mac Ross. He's an associate professor in the School of Kinesiology, Faculty of Health Sciences in Western University, and uh, has looked into IOC management and ethics for years now. Mac, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, this is not a good look for the Olympic movement. Uh, it's not a good look, but it's it's also not an unusual look. It's kind of the way, certainly in the last three years, the last, or I should say the last three Summer Olympics, it's been the norm now uh, for there to be some kind of corruption uh, around misuse of money, uh, whether that's bribery um, or embezzlement. Um, of course, this case is still open, but, you know, they, they've had uh, two investigations already, uh, and uh, they hadn't informed the public about that. They were doing that on the down low, so to speak, and now kind of bringing everything public and going and, and doing an official search uh, I think brings it to the forefront uh, at a time when the IOC is meeting right now um, and trying to put its best foot forward amidst other uh, controversies. I think this is something they probably could have lived without, um, although they probably saw it coming. There's going to be a lot of people who are not surprised at all that this is happening because there's a mindset out there, and rightfully so, that the Olympic Games are corrupt. The IOC, organizing committees, you know, there's always cash changing hands. Others others might be a little surprised thinking, you know, this has happened in the past. Why is it still happening? I think to some degree it happens out of necessity. Um, the Games have got so big at this point, they've become so extravagant. Uh, I saw uh, an anti-Olympic group had posted this uh, and were quoted uh, in some of the newspapers that there's really not a way to hold the Olympics anymore um, if you're not going to be engaged in some kind of financial improprieties unless, you know, you're you're an authoritarian regime with unlimited funds um, like we saw with Russia or China, um, then then it's not an issue. But if, if you're in a in a country that has close scrutiny of the way things are spent, the government can't just spend however they want. Um, you're you're going to run into a situation where almost always these uh, these events go over the budget you've set for them. Um, these ones are already over budget in terms of building infrastructure, even though that they, they use seventy five percent existing infrastructure. They still they still went over budget. Um, they they. And that, that, that's common when they put in the bids. They they tend to downplay how much it's going to cost, I think, so that the public won't get too shocked. And then things go off the rails. There have been stories, and not that long ago, of the Olympics focusing on certain cities around the world that come their year to, to host. That, uh, you know, for example, you know, the Olympics in Canada would be in Vancouver. In the States, it would be mm-hmm. Salt Lake City or, or, you know, Paris would be among those, Los Angeles in the mix. Are, are we moving closer to that with a story like this? I don't think this story will actually move us any closer to that, but uh, I do think that we're moving closer to that in terms of um, trying to secure a diversity of hosts to to have the games um, and have them be ready 
without any kind of controversy uh, to do so. So, yeah, I, I really like that idea of um, if we're going to continue to have the Olympics, which I'm not even sure is a good idea. I think that the idea of putting um, specific cities in charge of it in certain certain regions is, is probably the way to go forward if you're really trying to avoid corruption um, and wrongdoing in, in the bidding process, try to limit the impact on the environment um, and, and try to make sure it moves around because at this point they're having a really tough time getting anyone who wants to host the Olympic Games uh, on a consistent basis and, and getting enough bids in um, that they're really, you know, having to do the traditional investigations of, of potential cities and go visit and all those things, which is also kind of good because one one of the major problems I used to have was bribery when those officials would go to the cities. Um, so that's less of a problem when there's less cities in the running. But um, yeah, I think I think that is probably where it'll go in the future, um, which raises new concerns, right, about who gets to host um, and who gets access to these events. Yeah, and, and what year do they get to host, that is for sure. Mac, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your commentary on this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.